the first time, we have a historically significant copyright-expired song opening the podcast. What you're listening to now is Livery Stable Blues by the original Dixieland jazz band, what most people consider to be the first jazz recording ever made. Wow! Every jazz hep cat and cool daddy-o you have ever listened to is descended from this. Except kind of not, because there's an interesting story here. And everything I'm about to say, I learned from, as they called it on 30 Rock, that trashy reality show Ken Burns Jazz. So, the original Dixieland Jazz Band. Absolutely not the original. They invented jazz the way I invented post-it notes. The biggest name in jazz back then was a guy named Freddie Keppard. Freddie, like basically everyone in jazz, was from New Orleans. Freddie at that time was called the King of Jazz, which I learned is, it was like a formal title. It was like holding the heavyweight championship belt. You were the King of Jazz, then somebody else was the King of Jazz. On his Wikipedia page, it actually says, preceded by and succeeded by as the King of Jazz. I wonder if there was a physical crown involved with this. It sounds very formal. You had to go to Westminster Abbey to be coronated the King of Jazz, or whatever the New Orleans equivalent of Westminster Abbey is, someplace where they serve gumbo. Anyway, in 1915, the Victor Talking Machine Company, which I think is a great name for an old-timey record company, the Victor Talking Machine Company, which is also where you can find all Neil Young's stuff now, they came to Freddie Keppard, asked him to make a record. He said no because he was afraid of people ripping him off. Freddie Keppard, great musician, not an early adopter. The sad outcome here is that that left the door open for someone else to make the first jazz record, and that someone else turned out to be the quote-unquote original Dixieland jazz band. So talk about getting ripped off. Freddie Keppard got ripped off about as badly as anyone ever got ripped off. Because the original Dixieland jazz band, guess what? They were white. In a genre in which damn near everyone was black, five white, like the only five white guys in New Orleans playing this music, ended up being the first to make a record, because guess why? Because they were white, and it's all about access. Access! It's not about the quality of your idea, it's about the quality of your access, and they had it. So they made the first jazz record, which you are listening to now. The song you're hearing now is a fun little ditty and also a little bit of a hate crime. A little bit. Anyway, just a sad little story about actual cultural appropriation to kick us off there. Hello, I'm Jeff Maurer, and this is the I Might Be Wrong podcast. This is a thing I do for some goddamn reason where I make an audio version of some of the stuff I write that can be found at imightbewrong.substack.com. That's my Substack. It's currently completely free and will be until, uh, you know, later. I don't know. And today's episode is called We Can Promote Justice Without Being Henry Ford-Level Racist Against Asian Americans. I wanted to write this one because affirmative action in colleges is going to be struck down by the Supreme Court. It's all but certain. They're going to hear this Harvard case. There's a lot of pessimism on the left. Regarding this reality, a lot of people thinking, oh no, now what? I think there's a better way to do class mobility anyway. Class mobility, which is often racial mobility. I think the doomsday mindset is not called for. I'm actually more optimistic than most people on this topic. There's a better way forward, and I wanted to talk about it. So, the episode is called, We Can Promote Justice Without Being Henry Ford-Level Racist Against Asian Americans. Subheading, There Is a Better Way. 
So last week, New York Magazine columnist Jonathan Chait, who I like, he's a smart guy and he knows his way around a Big Lebowski quote, which I respect. He wrote an article called The Left is Gaslighting Asian Americans About College Admissions, subheading I Support Affirmative Action, but Stop Denying It Discriminates Against Asians. I think you should check it out. I think it's a good column, and it was a little bit controversial because he committed the sin of stating a blindly obvious fact, which is that Harvard is discriminating against Asian Americans. Let me read some excerpts. Here's Chait, who's from Michigan, so he doesn't have an accent, which is a shame. If he was from Minnesota, I would give him that fun, ridiculous accent, and it would be a lot of fun. But anyway, Chait writes, The facts, as presented by the plaintiffs, in the Harvard case, are crystal clear. Asian Americans admitted to Harvard have higher standardized test scores than any other group, including whites. Different quote, whatever the legal merits, the political case for Harvard's system and the similar systems used by its fellow elite institutions has been formed by a stream of insultingly dishonest propaganda. Skip forward, Harvard's defenders will suggest Harvard does not hold Asian American applicants to a higher standard and then change the subject to something more congenial to their preferred conclusion. Their arguments tend to employ a jargon-heavy, elliptical style George Orwell derided in his essay Politics and the English Language, obfuscatory rhetoric that avoids directly engaging with facts that discomfort the party line. Last quote, Reality is complicated, but one identifiable aspect of this complex reality is systemic discrimination against Asian Americans. End quote. Excellent points. I can't believe you made me say obfuscatory. <laughs> Solid eight or nine takes to say that word. But I 80% got there eventually, didn't I? Anyway, back to me talking. I had intended at some point to write a column about the exact thing Chait just wrote a column about, about how Harvard's argument in this case the Supreme Court is about to hear, it's so fucking clownish it makes Benny Hill seem like King Lear. Chait covers a lot of it. I encourage you to read his article. What's going on is Harvard has hidden its de facto quota system, with all the effectiveness of a 7th grader hiding his boner behind a math book. Harvard's patent-worthy discrimination machine is an evaluation category called personality. Now, <laughs> as you might deduce from just the name, personality is a completely subjective nonsense category. They might as well have called it essence or zazzle. Harvard regularly gives Asian-American students shockingly low personality scores. This appears to be the main reason why the school's Asian population is less than half of what it would be if students were admitted solely on the basis of academic merit. The most charitable interpretation of what's going on here, what Harvard says is what's going on here, is that Asian applicants just happen to be Mostly Spock-like automatons whose feelings and behaviors are a pale facsimile of actual human experience, which is an argument so racist, I think it would spark a dive in subscriptions if it appeared in the pages of the Daily Stormer. That is such a fucking ugly argument. <laughs> oh, they're all just robots. That's what's happening here. I'm offended on their behalf, and as an introvert myself, solidarity with other introverts whose personality... Maybe doesn't show up on an application. Ugly, ugly stuff. One of those arguments you kind of can't believe you heard it out loud. Anyway, the consequences of Harvard's policies and the policies of other Ivy League colleges can be seen in a graph from The Economist, 
which I have put in the written version of this episode, which can be found at imightbewrong.substack.com. The graph looks like this. It shows the Asian American college age population between 1990 and 2013. And of course, it's going up, up, up. It's about double in 2013, more than double in 2013 when it was in 1990. It's going up, up, up. And at a school like Caltech, which admits students solely on the basis of academic merit, the share of Asian American undergrads is going up, 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 commensurate with the population. But at the Ivies, and they track all the Ivies, the share of Asian undergrads stays remarkably flat at about 15%. Little fluctuation here and there, but really very flat, 15%, even as their share of the population is going up, up, up. I would say you would have to be a complete moron to not know what's going on here. So Chait and I seem to agree that the question is not really whether Asian Americans are being discriminated against. That question is settled. The answer is yes. The question is whether that discrimination is justifiable. Chait calls himself, quote, a somewhat squishy supporter of affirmative action, end quote, which that could also maybe describe me. It's probably a bit more accurate to call me a somewhat squishy opponent of affirmative action. If you want my views on this in full, look up an article on my Substack called How I Went From Sure to Meh on Affirmative Action Over 20 Years. Basically, I think there are times when factoring in race or gender or other traits makes sense. I'm not calling for total colorblindness in all cases. I can think of cases when factoring in race or whatever seems like the right thing to do. But I do think at the moment we frequently overapply those considerations in harmful ways. Without a doubt, I should add, my general discomfort with our current policies is absolutely informed by my background in entertainment, where I worked very recently and arguably still work now. Entertainment is a field where the most tokenizing, crass, <laughs> poorly considered types of racial preferences that might be imagined in a conservative fever dream are pretty much the industry standard. So that's my bias. Back to Chait. He argues that the plain-as-day discrimination against Asian applicants should be weighed against the policy's benefits. He also gives voice to some of the liberal despair surrounding the Supreme Court's all but certain impending ruling against affirmative action. He writes, quote, Liberals used to speculate about some grand bargain that would trade away affirmative action for some other, more effective way to close the scandalous gap between white and black America. I don't believe any such trade is possible. Ending affirmative action will probably just mean less social equality, period. End quote. And here's where we see things differently. Affirmative action's supporters often portray the policy as a necessary corrective for society's obvious injustices. If I thought that were true, if I thought we faced a binary choice between addressing very obvious inequality through affirmative action or doing nothing at all, I would probably be decisively on the affirmative action side. But I don't think that's true. I think there is a better way to do it. I think giving students a leg up based on socioeconomic status, not race, is both a more fair and a more defensible policy. And, P.S., it would also give many non-white students access to elite universities. It's like what I said about the original Dixieland jazz band, access 
It's all about access. I'm still pro-access. And I think the reality is, discussions of affirmative action are often actually discussions about socioeconomic status. Affirmative action proponents frequently use race as a proxy for class, which happens to be exactly what Tufts professor Natasha Wariku does in a recent episode of The Argument. This is the New York Times podcast, The Argument, with Jane Koston. Tufts professor Natasha Wariku was recently the pro-affirmative action side on an episode called Affirmative Action and America's Cosmetically Diverse College Campuses. And on that podcast, in response to the question, should we consider race in applications to colleges, Professor Wariku begins her argument by talking about, guess what, socioeconomic status for about a minute. Those are the first words that come out of her mouth on the podcast. It is the part of the discussion where you make your most persuasive argument. And Wariku determined, probably correctly, that the most compelling argument for race-based preferences is an argument that, if you listen closely, it's actually an argument about class. She's asked about race. She starts talking about class. I think it's worth emphasizing that I think the advantages conferred by class, because we're going to talk about class here, because that's mostly what it is. Those advantages, I think, are very, very real. I moved a lot growing up. I went to six different public schools from K through 12. Oh, I was a popular lad. And <laughs> my galaxy brain insight from that experience is that different places are different. What an insight, huh? But they are. Aside from the obvious cultural differences, which are real enough that they were the basis of my stand-up act for about a decade, there are big-time disparities in access to resources and general ease of life. These things are hard to quantify. How do you quantify, like, downtime or parents' ability to help with homework? But even though they're hard to quantify, I think they shape our lives a lot. Socioeconomic status is absolutely not a perfect proxy for advantage. I mean, given the choice between being born into a poor family with loving parents or being Logan Roy's fifth child, I would definitely choose the first scenario. It's not a perfect proxy for advantage, but it is probably the best measure that we have. Not surprisingly, policies that don't target the main thing that's actually the problem are not addressing the main thing that's actually the problem. Writing in The Economist in 2018, Richard Collenberg of the Century Foundation found that 71% of black and Latino students at Harvard come from wealthy backgrounds. Many black students are not American descendants of slaves. Henry Louis Gates, he of the popular PBS show Finding Your Roots and Discovering That Your Grandma Was a Liar and a Little Bit of a Hussy with Henry Louis Gates, which is a good show that I enjoy. Henry Louis Gates once estimated that Students with purely black American roots make up probably about a third of Harvard's black students. A 2007 study found that more than 40% of black Ivy League students come from immigrant families. That number is almost certainly higher today. There are all sorts of measures that show that affirmative action is not doing much to make top universities less elite. You can basically slice this onion any way you want to slice it. A simple one is, what percentage of students at top colleges come from the top 1% of household wealth? It is somewhere in the mid-teens. What percentage come from the bottom 40% of household wealth? It's about 8%. And by the way, the last time this was studied, in 2013, the trend lines are actually going in the wrong direction. We are getting more rich kids and fewer poor kids. 
It's real bad stuff. <laughs> now, the charts, the data, which are in the written version of this article, those are one way to look at things if you find those charts too antiseptic and prefer more impassioned analysis from someone who has worked in college admissions. Here is Freddie DeBoer in a post titled, Why the Fuck Do You Trust Harvard? I don't know where Freddie DeBoer is from, so he also avoids getting a 70% accurate and 100% offensive accent attached to his quote. Nonetheless, his quote is, The whole selection process for elite schools is to skim a band of truly gifted students from the top and then admit a bunch of kids with identical resumes whose parents will collectively buy the crew team a new boathouse. And then you find a kid whose parents moved to the States from Nigeria two years before he was born, and his family owns a mining company, and you call that affirmative action. You have been worked. You have been took. You are doing the bidding of some of the wealthiest, most elitist, most despicable institutions on earth. You think Harvard gives a single merciful fuck about poor black teenagers? Are you out of your goddamned minds? End quote. Well put, Freddy. And as a side note, it is nice to see someone on Substack who can hang with me profanity-wise. Always a good read, Freddie DeBoer. It's good to have a legit leftist in your media diet. I recommend Freddie DeBoer. The line about the boathouse, about buying the new boathouse for the crew team, that does bring up something that maybe doesn't even need to be said, but let me go ahead and say it quickly here. I think that colleges should also do away with legacy admissions. This is a bit of a nud-duh, though I haven't always been an absolutist on this question. I used to think that if an applicant was really close to admission on the merits and admitting them would secure a large donation that would make life better for other students, boathouse or otherwise, then special consideration should be given. And of course, you know, the dumber the kid, the heftier the dimwit tax. A garden variety dullard might get entry with a boathouse-sized donation, whereas Jared Kushner, for example, would require a donation about the size of Germany's GDP. That's how I used to feel. Not anymore. I have come to believe that even that trade-off is not worth it. The abject unfairness of the situation is just so corrosive that I personally think schools should scrap legacy admissions altogether and just absorb whatever hit is going to accrue to their endowment. And one piece of good news about making preferences in college admissions about socioeconomic status instead of race is that college admission happens to occur at a moment in a student's life when extensive data about their family's wealth exists. It exists, and it tells us something about how much of an advantage that student has enjoyed. That's kind of fortunate. Schools already collect financial data for scholarship purposes, and it should be noted, most schools already sort of do factor socioeconomic status into admissions. I am basically arguing that this consideration should mostly or entirely replace racial considerations. One common objection to focusing on socioeconomic status is that black people often live in neighborhoods with more poverty than do white people of equal means. And though I find some of the studies that lead to that conclusion a bit kind of iffy, my reasoning being the definition of neighborhood matters a lot. In Brooklyn, for example, very rich people live very close to very poor people. Where you draw the lines around the neighborhood really matters. Also, if a person with substantial economic means makes a decision about which neighborhood is right for them, I'm not sure they really count as disadvantaged at that point. But 
regardless, let me respond to that argument by saying I am personally comfortable with some sort of geography-based adjustment to account for the fact that it is true. The only thing that the Bronx and Westchester County, which are right next to each other but are very different places, the only thing they have in common is that they share a Trader Joe's. Everyone likes chili spiced mango, but that is where the commonality ends between those two places. The point being, I am also on board with some kind of geography-based adjustment. I really do think that economic-based considerations have several advantages over race-based considerations. Importantly, and this is a biggie, they do not require the Texas-sized dose of race-based discrimination that we are inflicting on Asian applicants, and to a much lesser extent, white applicants, though Asian applicants are taking the big hit here. We don't have to do that, which the courts are about to find unconstitutional anyway. Another advantage of economic considerations is that they are likely to be seen as more just, because basically everyone understands that growing up in Compton or Appalachia can be tough. That is an obvious disadvantage. Well, it is less obvious what disadvantage is suffered by a one-quarter black person whose dad <laughs> is an international banker and whose mom is an extremely famous supermodel. And I use that example because that is a real person I used to know. I hope she's not listening. Though what if she is? It's not. It's, she's a nice person. It's just <laughs> her family's super rich. Anyway, it's also worth noting that precisely because race and economics in this country are so intertwined, economic-based policies are likely to produce racially diverse student bodies. In the Economist article I referenced earlier, Richard Collenberg describes a simulation he did using data from actual Harvard applicants that imagines no legacy preferences, no racial preferences, it's easy if you try, and gives socioeconomically disadvantaged applicants half of the boost, only half of the boost, that Harvard gives to recruited athletes. What were the results? The results were that the share of underrepresented minority students actually increased from 28 to 30 percent, and the proportion of first-generation college students increased from 7 percent to 25 percent, and, and, and there's more. The results probably would have been even more dramatic if Kallenberg had access to data about wealth, not just income, because, of course, white people generally have more wealth. So let me reiterate those findings. Share of underrepresented minority students increased from 28 to 30 percent. First-generation college students up from 7 percent to 25 percent. This is just a simulation, of course, but it does suggest there is a way of doing this where what's going to happen is you're going to get more students from poor families, and because there's such a strong correlation between wealth and race in this country, that means you're going to end up getting a lot of non-white students as well. It does seem to me that we are kind of not faced with an either-or choice here. Now, I have written pretty extensively about how I think affirmative action policies are, for the most part, not literally all of them, but many, many of them, especially the ones in entertainment, my God. I think they are well-intentioned efforts that have failed to evolve with the times and have become counterproductive. I think they increase the salience of race, which I'm not comfortable with because I don't think race is really a thing. I think they increase the salience of race, and I think they have serious negative consequences, of which the obvious discrimination against Asian Americans is one. They also happen to be unbelievably unpopular among Americans 
of all races. If I'm being frank, I think these policies are a gigantic albatross around Democrats' necks. I think huge swaths of the progressive agenda are being sacrificed for a policy that does not work remotely as it is intended. Improving opportunity and improving class mobility is a major project. Much of my writing focuses on things like supporting working families and reducing housing costs because I think those policies help break down society's baked-in disadvantages. To some extent, I think the progressive attachment to affirmative action reflects frustration with a lack of progress on bigger issues. I think the fact that disparities are still rampant is kind of bumming us out, so we forcibly engineer something that we can pretend is equality. But of course, that is like trying to eat plastic fruit. The thing isn't real, and pretending that it is just doesn't fucking work. And the blunt fact is, affirmative action in universities, as we know it, will die soon. 99%, I suppose, is a 1% chance, but it will die soon. But personally, I welcome death. A better policy <laughs> is out there. We can promote class mobility. We can improve fairness. We can give disadvantaged students better access to elite spaces. And we can do all that without enacting a level of discrimination against Asian Americans that, quite frankly, would probably make Ty Cobb blush. And that's the episode. You know, I think it has to be said, Livery Stable Blues, absolutely one of the better copyright expired songs we've had on the podcast. It's more fun. It's more lively. Oh, sure. It's theft of the highest order. The guys involved maybe should have gone to jail. But fun little ditty. A lot of the copyright-expired songs from the 20s, they really are dinky and crappy. One of the best arguments for multiculturalism really is, uh, white people kind of need to be <laughs> saved from ourselves sometimes. And I think that is apparent in music. This song, though stolen from black musicians, is a hell of a lot more fun than the three dozen odd plodding, tinny little numbers about the moon that we've featured on this podcast. Anyway, that's it for this week. Thank you very much for listening. As always, everything I do, literally everything I do, I'm going to make myself a sandwich. That's going to go up on imightberwrong.substack.com, which is my Substack, which I stole from a band. That's the name of a Radiohead song, but it's okay when I do it. I will be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you very much for listening, and bye for now. Bye for now.